one of my favorite lines. This is definitely a contender. At 10.01, I drive to the hospital and execute your mother on my way out of town and don't pretend indifference. <laughs> Holy shit. What do you say to that? In the words of your former boyfriend, he could kill six guys and then have a sandwich. Maybe even the sandwich oh God, that Jamie Foxx so was enjoying in the cab. <laughs> now, oh man, don't you just want to go hop in a cab right now? No, I want to eat and I want to watch Rear Window. Yes, ma'am. Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? My favorite line from Michael Mann's Collateral. That is a very fucking challenging question because there are so many lines. It's a movie that is economical in movement, in dialogue, in narration, in direction. All the words spoken are either important, they're informative, or they're nuanced and memorable. For me, they both go to Vincent, and I'm just going to treat it as a part of one dialogue as he says them so rapidly back to back in this very suspenseful, pivotal scene. Don't get me cornered. You don't have the trunk space. And then, if you open that trunk, they go inside. Oh, man. Tom Cruise as Vincent, the contract killer. Love his lines. My favorite scene from Collateral is probably one of my favorite two-minute sequences in just about any film in the last 25 years. There is a scene about halfway through where the actor's faces... The movement, the filming, the cinematography, the street lights of the city of anonymity, the coyotes running across the road, the metaphorical context, the music, audio slaves, shadow on the sun playing for all to hear. Not a word of dialogue is spoken, and it is absolutely fucking beautiful and brilliant. The coyotes, the pensive reflection, en route to Club Fever, and shadow on the sun. I don't know if I can think off the top of my noggin of a scene in a movie where the music matches the actor's faces and the energy of the scene so majestically. I love that scene from Collateral. The second that the coyotes are crossing the way and the music starts to play. Red Devil, what is your favorite line or exchange of dialogue and scene from Michael Mann's Collateral 2004? I obviously have to mention the jazz scene where Max and Vincent are there. And Max says, I never learned to listen to jazz. Vincent, it's off melody, behind the notes, not what's expected, improvising like tonight. Max, like tonight? Vincent, most people, 10 years from now, same job, same place, same routine, everything the same. Just keeping it safe over and over and over. Ten years from now? Man, you don't know where you'll be ten minutes from now, do you? I just like that. Well, obviously I like the jazz, but also what he's saying so true, even though he's a villain. And that's kind of a theme through the whole movie is you actually kind of like Vincent, but you know that he is terrifying and just a horrifying villain. As for my favorite scene, obviously the Coyotes is a contender, so I felt like I didn't want to copy you, but I really like the scene in the club. So the club, holistically, that whole part of the movie, I really did like that. But especially whenever Vincent is starting to go after his prey, this mob boss or whatever, 
that Asian gentleman is. But whenever he like flips on his back and does a shooting, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I really like that. I was like, uh, that looks pretty awesome. And I wish I could do that. I will discuss that scene with you ad nauseum after our breathtaking introduction to this slick flick pick. Welcome, cinematic fanatics, to Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Kimowak Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatics. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your Quinary episode, we offer a financially victorious, critically meritorious, filming with millimeter film at Club Fever, digital filming in the streets with Max the Believer and Vincent the Gray Stray Deceiver. Violence slick, sleek, sparing, and notorious. At one club fever, frenetic gunplay display uproarious, slick flick that oozes slick narration, a lean, linear pace, and both the fastest and shortest killer of the human fucking race. In equal Michael Mann-directed measures, we offer you, regarding this neo-noir action thriller, but also an L.A. crime cult fucking fantastic classic, a gray-suited, gray-bearded, gray-haired, but never dull nor gray auricular presentation of one of my most favorite, frequently rewatched, well-acted, and shot by Tom Cruise in 1.3 seconds in the alley shootout scene, with slick gravitas by a cooperative and collaborative duality of meek protagonists and a sleek antagonist, working off wholly original source material and capturing the sprawled-out, disconnected city of anonymity in a slick flick sheen, collateral, circa August 2004. In honor of this slick flick pick unveiling, we describe through smooth detailing this flick's slickness unfailing, urban shark circling prevailing, and refreshingly direct dialogue regaling. This is a slick cinematic experience that touches a quartet of genres, neo-noir, action, thriller, and crime. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I have adored this film since the unique treat of my first post-high school theatrical viewing. Vincent's nihilistic sarcasm cuts sharper than his tactical knife. He's no time for an F-star's wife, and what he does for a living is snuff your F-star's light. Max and Annie stir a cauldron of chemistry halfway to a San Andreas earthquake. As the West Coast sun sets, it cools after its sun-drenched bake. No souvenirs does this indifferent killer take. Keeping a pristine, clean cab, getting lucky with the lights, and letting Annie out of your sister-fucking-cab are Max's mistakes. Vincent offers six crisp bills and assures his chauffeur a six-stop piece of cake but instead says, Red Light Max, pops the trunk at gunpoint demands 
that Max pump the brake and compels Max from his lethargic slumber to wake. It came as one moment of a fucking shock when Red Devil professed her undying acclaim for the coyotes prancing to audio slave and the merits of this slick flick pick. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as F-stars, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out in your Barco lounger as I unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. Collateral is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I am your worthwhile cinephile. You're my cinematic fanatics. Together we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative F-Stars clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, Falsetto Prophet and... Red Devil. You cinematic fanatics into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you pick five. Slick Flick Pick, A Frighteningly Unfair Fair, City of Anonymity, Collateral, 2004. Today we will discuss a hitman's pedigree, a nocturnal murder spree, and, as Vincent is a murderous machine, we never see him pee. You with the pee, always, God. Your worthwhile cinephile, Falsetto Prophet. Attention cinematic fanatics, it was cosmic coincidence that my first five slick flick picks are all one-word titles. Constantine was number one, Chinatown was number two, Sleepers was three, Predator was four, and Collateral five. What the shitballs is going on with these cosmic coincidences? Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx. I will tell you there's another cosmic coincidence, which I will go into a little bit later. But Tom Cruise, as you know, was married to Katie Holmes. And after their divorce, where she was scared to death of what might befall her and their child, she started dating Jamie Foxx at a later time. Oh. For many, many years, they dated. I didn't even think about that. Yup. So perhaps it's, maybe that was his way of getting revenge on the ghost of Vincent. Max wins, after all. Well, they're not together anymore. And I don't know that he yeah. fathered any children with her. No, I don't, I don't think so. Katie Holmes is actually doing fine financially on her own, no matter how you slice it. There's a lot going on here. There's so much to say. So let's start with this. Red Devil, do you remember the circumstances in which you first watched Collateral? And do you remember kind of what you thought about the movie? Because it's on its face, it's an insane movie. A guy picks up another guy. That guy has all these kills to make, all these stops to take. And that's basically the movie. But you put Michael Mann on it. You put this nightly slick cinematography and this filming style on it and you put top-notch actors in it and you have a masterpiece from what could have been a pile of paper mache and fucking mud so what do you remember the first time that you watched collateral what do you remember about the movie or how you felt about it i don't exactly remember where i was or anything like that in fact do you know we watched it together okay it was us okay 
I do remember in every time I watch it, I really like the colors. So it's like there are bright, it's almost like reflections of light, but it's still colorful, but dark at the same time, if that makes sense. And some of that's because it's at night, but I just, I love driving at nighttime when there's all the lights and everything. And that's kind of the aesthetic of the whole film. I just think it's a pretty film to watch. And obviously the action's awesome. Do you find it to be believable for what it is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, hopefully that never happens. And honestly, you're having thoughts during the movie, like whenever Vincent actually gets in the cab or he he actually is about to get into a different cab. And then Max is like, oh, 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 no, come on, man. As an audience member, you're just like, oh, man, if he had just let him go, he would have. Obviously, we wouldn't have a movie, but you're rooting for Max. There's so many interesting things just in that statement. So, for example, I think that Vincent getting in Max's cab was the best thing that could have happened for a lot of people because Max fought back. Vincent could have easily had any other cabbie that just went along with the show the whole time. Max survives. He actually turns out in pretty good shape. He doesn't have a scratch on him. I mean, Tom Cruise like punched him a little bit and he tripped him and threw him down on that bridge, but he has sustained no bullet wounds, no stab wounds. He's the hero that thwarted the villain and he gets Jada Pinkett Smith, who I think this is the most attractive she has ever looked in anything. So he gets the girl. He's the David that slew Goliath. He's not damaged. But more importantly, he has been jostled free from his Barco lounger state. So he was a cabbie for 12 years. I think two things are going to happen after the end of this movie. He and Jada Pinkett Smith are going to be together for a long, long time. And he's going to start Island Limos or something of that pedigree. The only area where Jamie Foxx really came up short was... He was offered $600 plus an extra 100 if he could get Vincent to the airport and Vincent doesn't have to run to catch the plane. He only got $300 plus some hospital sterile flowers and maybe one paid for drink at the jazz club. That's it. Well, maybe what he did after the movie, and we just didn't see it, is he went through Vincent's pockets. He should have gone back because nobody would think that he's dead anyway. He should have gone back to Vincent's corpse on the train and taken his wallet. That's what I think. So the scene that you surprised me a little bit. So I thought what you were going to say was your favorite scene was the coyote audio slave scene. The reason I thought that was going to be your favorite scene is because every time we watch the movie, you in no uncertain terms say, I love this goddamn scene. Well, yeah, I mean, it is my favorite scene, but I but you took it. So I, I wanted to take something else like my second favorite scene. Well, that scene. OK, so it surprises me because you haven't really talked about the club that much. but to me. The club is the comparable action sequence to the bank robbery of Heat. It happens about halfway through. You're very, very invested as it's happening. And you're very curious how things are going to play out after the scene is concluded. I remember seeing that scene in the movie theater. And as we talk about cosmic coincidence, things are about to get very interesting here. So before I knew her, Red Devil went on one date with this character named AJ. That's right fucking initials. Guy thinks he's a polo player or something. They went on one date a lifetime ago. Well, there was a period in my life of about maybe three years where I saw him as like a little brother. 
We were very close. We hung out a lot. We worked out together. We got Buffalo Wild Wings together. We had a good time. And I saw Collateral with him in the theater. And I remember us both just being mesmerized by the slickness of this fucking flick pick. I remember asking him, so what'd you think about Tom Cruise in that movie? And he goes, oh man. He goes, that guy could kill 20 people and then eat a sandwich. And I was like, yep, he sure could. So cosmic coincidence, Vincent getting in the cab of Max, Max getting the girl, Katie Holmes, Katie Holmes married to Tom Cruise and then dating Jamie Foxx, me talking to Red Devil, who went on a date with AJ a lifetime ago, and me watching Collateral in the theater with AJ. What are the goddamn odds, I ask? As far as the scene that I love so much with the coyotes, I have watched that scene by itself on YouTube snippets. That's how much I like the scene. And this is what three YouTube personalities have said about the coyote scene. There's someone, Triple A Subs, says, Phenomenal scene. Despite the tremendous difference in their lifestyle, their beliefs, their morals, they both are still human beings. That can both share a moment and appreciate a lonely coyote crossing the road. To me, that was the most impactful scene in this movie, and a whole lot of movies, to be honest. RB, the moment the music kicks in, I get goosebumps every time. Such an underrated movie, and in my opinion, one of Tom's best performances. Let me stop you right there, RB. Probably cousin AJ. This is Tom Cruise's greatest performance. The way he looks, the way he did the training to make the combat scenes look extremely proficient, technical, and accurate. The dialogue, the way he delivers that dialogue. You put the dialogue from this movie into the hands of a less capable actor, and it falls flat. He still is able to be charming, even though he's got ice in his fucking veins. By the way, little trivia, originally, they were going to have Fanning, who was played by Mark Ruffalo, they were going to have it be Val Kilmer. How cool would that have been if Vincent had the ice, Iceman, from Top Gun? How crazy would that have been, right? Well, yeah, we can fantasize about that. And that was Val Kilmer when he was still awesome, like in 2004, before he started getting really weird looking. The last comment on the coyote scene, Anthony Jordan, there may be no perfect movie, but there are perfect scenes. I agree. It is a perfect scene. And there's actually a lot of imagery and metaphorical connotations to it. So what you see is one coyote is running across the road, somewhat scared. And then a second coyote is coming behind him at a prance pace, kind of like OJ would cross the road. And what Benson is taking note of is he's seeing the second coyote running after the weaker coyote as like a predator. The symbolism here is that whenever Vincent is sitting right behind Max in the cab, it's a more intimate moment. When he's not sitting directly behind him, he's sitting catty-cornered to him, and this is more when his guard's up, and he's trying to see what Max is doing and have a tactical advantage over him. So I thought that all of that was interesting. It's Tale of the Title. So this is a telling title. I call it a frighteningly unfair fair because I just like the way that it sounds. And obviously, this was the worst fair that you could ever get. And Vincent is frightening. But City of Anonymity, this, in retrospect, I could have made as my sole title because I love it so much. But instead of City of Angels, you have an anonymous city where anonymity is so important to Vincent. And he speaks on it both at the beginning of the movie and the end about how someone once got on the public transportation service. And he went for six hours without anyone thinking he was even dead. So anonymity is the part of LA that we're interested in for purposes of this film's unraveling. Also, anonymity rhymes with city. Heyo! 
and I'll do anything for a rhyme. Now, what do you think the title Collateral means, Red Devil? What do you think the significance is of Collateral, the title? Collateral is kind of like a repayment or like this for that, typically is what I think of. And that's, to me, symbolic of Max and Vincent. More so Max, I think that's more in your face, like you were saying earlier. He obviously is going to be leaving this experience a changed man. But there are moments, you have to admit, that Max is kind of getting through to Vincent as well. And even though that softer side of Vincent, if that's for lack of a better way to describe it, there's glimpses and it doesn't stay. It's not permanent. He goes back to work, so to speak. And he just kind of turns into this assassination machine. You know, I, I think Max had an impact on on Vincent. I'm going to make an argument for that. Well, you can tell there are multiple times in the film where Vincent could have killed him, and he just won't. And one of the most telling scenes, I think, is when they start picking up the Shadow on the Sun song again, and he puts the gun to Max's head. And Max is like, you know, just kill us. Just, just kill both of us. And he just won't do it. So then, of course, Max gets the, you know, go fuck yourself, Vincent. And Tom Cruise doesn't kill him then either. So you have to wonder if maybe he just, cosmic coincidence, he met the right cabbie at the right time that was causing him to reflect a little bit. It's funny, the recurring theme is he keeps talking about his work. When he's sitting at the jazz club, he tells Daniel, he says, I was contracted to do this work. And then he tells Jamie Foxx, I'm working. And then at the end, I do this for a living. Like this is his lifestyle. And it's a voluntary lifestyle as far as we know. All we know is that he's been in the private sector for six years. You're left to wonder, was he in the military? Was he a black ops? How did he acquire this training? Was he working in private security post the military? And then like they were saying briefly in the parking lot when the FBI was kind of explaining to Fanning and his other detective kind of what they might be faced with. They were saying that the cartel likes to hire out to these contract companies, these contractors, the private security, that kind of thing. The actual definition of collateral, you're right. It's something pledged as security for repayment of a loan. So it's interesting that that was your take on it. The second is additional or secondary. And the third is situated side by side and or parallel. Well, the only time you hear mention of the word in the film is when Max is getting kind of despondent after the jazz club shooting. And he says, I'm collateral. Like, why don't you just kill me anyway? I'm collateral anyway. And I think that's his way of expressing to Vincent that he recognizes that he's expendable and it's kind of telling. Now, at some point, you'll hear a couple times in the film, both uttered by Vincent and by Max, I Ching, like Darwin, I Ching shit happens. Well, what I learned about that was I Ching is an ancient Chinese divination text that is among the oldest of the Chinese classics. Also, archaeological evidence shows that the Zhao dynasty divination was grounded in claromancy, the production of seemingly random numbers to determine divine intent. Well, divine intent and numerics and chance, these are all factors that play out through collateral. Why did these two people meet? Also, it's interesting because there's dialogue where Vincent is in his nihilistic, he's a realist nihilist, that's his classification, where he seems to have a bleak view of humanity, but in a way he's not wrong. But he talks about how he doesn't like coming to LA 
because it's sprawled out and disconnected, which is ironic because throughout the course of the film, there's a lot of overlap. One, you have him crossing paths with Annie after he already knows that she's a target in her building at the very beginning of the movie. And then on the elevator at the hospital, you've got Detective Fanning, you've got Vincent, and you've got Max all in the same elevator. Not to mention what's happening with the bodies that are getting brought into the morgue. So it really makes you wonder if things are really sprawled out and disconnected, or if it's more of a Venn diagram of close proximity. The film was directed by Michael Mann in 2004. There is no source material. This is not based on a book or anything of the like, to my knowledge. It stars the electrifying Tom Cruise. Who is the best performance in the film? Tom Cruise. Okay. I'm glad you said that because I'm going to come back around to that. But it's got Jamie Foxx, Jada Pinkett Smith, Mark Ruffalo, Peter Berg. Now, Peter Berg is good. I'm going to talk about him in a minute, too. And one of my favorites, Bruce McGill. There are also cameos. Jason Statham is as a cameo. Ooh, I love Jason Statham. At the very beginning of the film in the airport. And you have a cameo from Javier, who was the villain Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Also a great movie. And he was a villain in... James Bond! Skyfall! Skyfall! He's a great actor, period. It was distributed by DreamWorks, a.k.a. Paramount Pictures. It is a cool 120-minute running time, so exactly two hours. How financially successful was this motherfucker? Well, $65 million budget, so probably $85 million after advertising and whatnot. $220 million box office. That, any way you slice it, is a full-fledged fucking victory. It's also one of Michael Mann's highest grossing films, if not his highest grossing film. I'm glad that you said you thought Tom Cruise was the best performance. I wholeheartedly agree, but the Academy would disagree with us. This was nominated for two, count them, two Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor, Jamie Foxx, nominated. Now, he already has won an Academy Award for his performance in Ray, where he plays Ray oh, Charles. Oh, yeah. I, I've never seen that. Yeah, neither have I. It was also nominated for Best Film Editing, and there was a lot of nominations across the board. Unfortunately, Tom Cruise would not win any of them. Jamie Foxx was also nominated for the Golden Globe. Tom Cruise was nominated for the MTV Movie Awards Best Villain. He should have won that. I don't give a shit. Why is Tom Cruise's performance so splendiferous? He's a guy that you hate to love, that you love to hate, depending Everybody hates him as a person, it seems like, because of decisions he makes in his life. But everybody seems to like him, or his movies, or what he brings to the movies. He's very smart with his slick flick pick selection. He does not pick a lot of movies that are bombs. The Mummy was an example of one that was a bomb. Generally speaking, he is extremely bankable, and he has been one of the longest bankable, billable stars. The reason I love him so much in this film is because... He's only Tom Cruise in this film via his physicality, but there are very few traces of the Tom Cruise that we know in his performance. It's subdued, it's nuanced, it's villainous, and to play against type when everybody knows who you are is quite a fucking feat. Did you know that for part of his training for this film, he was delivering packages in crowded areas as an undercover FedEx guy, and nobody was able to determine that's Tom Cruise. Whoa. That was part of his method acting training to get into the idea of being anonymous. Not to mention the six weeks plus he spent on the range learning how to do those firearm maneuvers that you spoke of at club FIVA. I got a FIVA 
And the only prescription is more cowbell. A sequel to Collateral where Tom Cruise lives. Oh. Or a prequel. Imagine a prequel where it shows like who he was before the scene. Yeah, that would be better. That would be so badass. Because I I mean, even though I like Vincent, I'm glad he died. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it was the only way the story could have ended, I think, for purposes of the movie within the context of it being in its like its own world, its own realm. This fantasy that you're embarking on. Okay, the club scene. High body counts. Must have been very difficult to film. I love so many things about the club scene. I love that the way he talks to Jamie Foxx, four paces to the left, three paces up front. I get the numbers a little wonky, but he says, if you wander, innocent bystanders get the first rounds. (laughs) (laughs) And then you got everybody but the Polish cavalry to take his word showing up. You got these Vato gangsters that are coming to make sure he does the job. You got Lynn's bodyguards. You got the FBI rolling in to try to get Lynn. By the way, the guy that comes out and grabs one of Lynn's bodyguard's guns and tries to wrestle it out of his hand, that's Paul Adelstein. He was the bad guy in Prison Break, one of the secret servicemen that was corrupt. Mm. He was great in Prison Break. All the chaos that unfolds in the club, it is shot so expertly by Michael Mann. Every attack, he goes for the weak points on the human body to bring them down quickly, efficiently, like a shark would. And like you said... He pulls the dead guy on top of him. His gun's about four feet to his left. He rolls, gets the gun, shoots twice, and then he gets up on his knee and then shoots the other guy. There is footage of him doing those same maneuvers on the actual firing range with live rounds. The theory here is that this is the first time Tom Cruise used live rounds for a film, Hmm. like in the training. And according to the people that trained him for this film, he wasn't even really that acquainted with firearms, oddly. I don't know how he did firearms in prior movies, but they said he, of course, was a natural. He defeated the own expectations where the scene in the alley where he, sh- he shoots five shots and takes down two perps, that was supposed to happen in 1.8 seconds. He does it in 1.3. Jeez. Just so insane. I want to say something. So the other thing notable about the club scene is he is on a mission. Obviously, he's like going through the crowd, messing up all these guys. If you notice, as soon as he kills his target, he's out of there. He's just like, okay, I accomplished my mission. He turns around and he's just like directly with purpose walking out of the club. He turns and walks away. It's awesome. Yeah. Now, how shocked were you when Fanning got it? Yeah, that sucked. And I remember we've seen this movie now about five times. I think three or four out of the five times you leap (gasps) every time he gets shot. (laughs) Like, because it's it's a shot that you don't see coming. It's not choreographed. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I don't know. And side trivia, okay, so Mark Ruffalo, he did extensive weapons training for his role, even though he never fires his weapon. But he wanted to look believable when he's carrying it, both at the apartment and at the club. Now, how do you nominate Fox, but not Cruz? This is very disconcerting to me, because if you think back to the movie Training Day, both Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke were nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor. That makes sense. Now, Denzel would go on to win Best Actor for Training Day, which makes me mad because I thought that the better performance was Russell Crowe for The Insider, but that's for another day. We discussed the Katie Holmes controversy. That's hilarious. Vincent is a realist nihilist because I've watched some videos that go into the philosophy behind Collateral. He is also the reassuring glue that holds this flick slickness together. He is the best performance in the film next to the captured energy and imagery of Nocturnal Los Angeles. I will admit, though, Jamie Foxx does a great job. He also plays against character. Usually, he's kind of these braggadocio types, but not in this film. 
He's very meek and he's very understated. Also, I think Jada Pinkett Smith does a good job, as do all the characters that have 10 minutes or less screen time. Very few viewers seem to realize that the ending is not just the final confrontation between Max and Vincent, but between their own philosophy on life itself. Vincent is an extremely well-disciplined hitman, but his outlook is nihilistic. While he appreciates the spontaneity embodied by the jazz music, and he seems to thrive on adaptability, in the end, why does he lose the gunfight, Red Devil? Because he's too set in his patterns. He does what Michael Mann loves to show in film, the Mozambique technique. Two to the chest, one to the head. Now this I've talked about in several of my episodes, so there's no reason to rehash it, but he also shows it a few times in the movie, Heat. But it's just a way to make sure that the person or the perp is dead. And it's usually the trademark of what they call like a double tap or gangster activity. It's like a gangland killing of sorts. But because he tries to do the Mozambique technique on Jamie Foxx, he hits the metal grate in the door and it doesn't work. Meanwhile, Max's sporadic wild shooting in the dark is what ultimately fells the villain. And it was on June 29, 2012, that Katie Holmes filed for divorce from Cruz in New York after five and a half years of marriage. But then, from 2013 to 2019, not very long after, she was rumored to be in a relationship with the actor-singer Jamie Foxx. Interesting indeed. Imagine if that was going on during the filming of Collateral. Maybe. Maybe Tom Cruise would become Vincent and there would be no more Jamie Foxx. Now, Peter Berg, he's pretty good. He's a director of a lot of movies. He has directed some really good war films, like he made Lone Survivor. Mm. And he made movies. He likes to work with Mark Wahlberg a lot. He did Deepwater Horizon. I thought this was interesting. There's something called the Caitlyn Jenner controversy. So on July 15, 2015, Berg criticized ESPN's decision to honor Caitlyn Jenner with the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. And he spoke about this via an Instagram post. He shared a Facebook photo of Army veteran Gregory Gadsden. Now, he was in the movie Battleship, which I believe Peter Berg also directed. He's a double amputee. And he posts this picture alongside the one of Caitlyn Jenner. And the message said, One man traded two legs for the freedom of the other to trade two balls for two boobs. <laughs> Guess which man made the cover of Vanity Fair? Was praised for his courage by President Obama and is to be honored with the Arthur Ashe Courage Award by ESPN. Along with the shared post, Berg commented, Yup. Berg received both praise and condemnation for the post. Well, I think that's a good point. Who's more worthy of an award? Yep. To get technical for a minute, Vincent gets technical with everything he does. Collateral is a 2004 American neo-noir action thriller film. It has a huge ensemble cast. Filming primarily took place throughout Los Angeles, which, as you know, Michael Mann loves to film in, i.e. with Heat in 1995. It was the first feature film to be shot with a Viper film stream high-definition camera. The musical score was composed by James Newton Howard, with additional songs from Audio Slave, like with the Coyote scene, and Paul Oakenfold, like in the club. Ready, steady, go. That song was also played in The Bourne Identity, when Jason Bourne is driving his car all around. The film received critical acclaim, in particular for the performances of Cruz and Fox, Man's Direction, and the editing. Collateral was chosen by the National Board of Review as one of the top 10 films of 2004. I think it was just a great film. Also, it's hard to find films that are like this, 
where they are a neo-noir flick with just high-class action set pieces and a very questionable, ambivalent villain that you're not exactly sure how you're supposed to feel about. Now, the trivialized trivia, or TT. I think it's great when Jamie Foxx asked Jada Pinkett Smith, oh, you like the classics? Yeah. So the song that was playing was Hands of Time by Groove Armada. That song was released in 2002, only two years before this movie. Groove Armada is an English electronic music duo. The duo have released nine studio albums, four of which have charted in the UK albums chart. It's a good song. I like the song. Red Devil, you like the song. But it's not a classic. To give the movie some grace, I took it to mean when he asked if she likes the classics, maybe the instruments that were being used, because they immediately start talking about, oh, woodwinds, stringed instruments, etc. Now, this is from Michael Mann himself. There's a stillness to the depth of which Tom is into the moment. He says regarding the scene at 44 minutes with Vincent and Max at the table with Daniel at the jazz club. Michael Mann adds he admires Tom Cruise's acting skill here and that he's so economically completely in the moment. That stillness fractures for the first time after he shoots Daniel. And there's a paroxysm of regret. That's the first anomaly to the perfect machine-like presentation we've had from Vincent. Tom Cruise trained for roughly three months on the LA County Sheriff's combat shooting ranges, and it was his first time with live bucking rounds. Surprising exactly nobody, Michael Mann adds, Tom is extraordinarily skilled at everything athletic that he tries. The guns that Vincent carries are a Heckler and Coke USP 45 caliber ACP and a Ruger MK2 22 caliber long rifle handgun. That's what he uses to kill Daniel in the club. And it has an integrated suppressor. And then towards the end of the movie, he will be using the gun that he swiped from the slain security guard of the Department of Justice building, a 9mm Smith & Wesson 5906. For the vast majority of this film, Michael Mann uses digital. It's this Viper film stream high-definition camera. But for the club scene specifically, that's original film. Because what I learned in my research of this film is that when it's a very lit area, the digital film doesn't work as well. That's when he resorts to the regular film. I thought that the score of the movie was great. James Newton Howard. I thought it was great, great, great music. But usually what you're hearing for most of the movie is the soundtrack, like when Jamie Foxx is driving around. But it's in the last 20, 30 minutes of the movie that you really get the James Newton Howard music. There are no opening credits of any kind. The title does not appear until the closing credits. I think that's probably an exercise in sleekness. Vincent is sleek. He's got a sleek suit, economical, bare minimum. I think Michael Mann's trying to do some sort of connection here. Max says he sometimes gets lucky with the traffic lights. He says this twice, once to Jada Pinkett Smith, once to Vincent. And it's funny because he gets very lucky with the lights, like in the train when the lights go out and then he's, get, he's given an advantage and is able to slay the Goliath that is electrifying Vincent. I never thought about that. Neither did I. Sheer luck. Vincent kills 16 people in one night. The fat guy, the penthouse guy, two hoods in the alley, the jazz guy, two of Felix's henchmen at Club Fever. I thought he only killed one because it looks like he shoots one and then the other guy ducks and he shoots and two bullets hit the wall. I'm going to contest that. Well, let's replay the footage, ref. He kills several of Lynn's bodyguards like six security guards he kills, 
One's neck broken, one's face bashed in for a shot. He kills Peter Lim, of course, and Detective Fanny, which always shocks you. And lastly, the security guard at the Department of Justice. But you do not see that kill occur. You just see the bleeding body. The person who was like the technical advisor for Tom Cruise gunplay is a man named McNabb. Now, McNabb, after leaving the army, maintained a specialist training course for news crews, journalists, and members of non-governmental organizations working in hostile environments. He was the technical weapons advisor for Michael Mann's Heat. And he is someone that's working arm-in-arm with Tom Cruise to show him how to use the weapons and feel comfortable using them. The closing train shot mirrors the opening train shot in the movie Heat. It's the same train. Which is one of your favorite movies, which is also one word. Correct. You're right. Both were directed by Michael Mann. Now, not everybody likes Collateral. My boy J-Dog, he loves Heat. So I thought he would be a shoe-in for having mad reverence for Collateral. There's one caveat, though. We'll call it the Cruise caveat. He doesn't like Tom Cruise. Yeah, I get that, J-Dog. This is like the only Tom Cruise movie I like. Well, I don't know. I think he likes some other Tom Cruise movies. Let's play a little game. You stop me when I'm right. Minority Report? I don't remember it. Top Gun? I never saw it. Any of the Mission Impossibles? I did see the first one or two. Do you like any of these movies? It's fine. It's fine. I do like when he's like hanging off the rock in Mission Impossible. Was that two? Yeah, I like that. Sorry. Basically, after he jumped on Oprah's couch, I was like, I'm out. This is weird. Well, Robert Blake killed his wife, and it did not make him any less of a great actor in In Cold Blood. Like the Truman Capote Mm. in Cold Blood? Truman Capote's book, but it was made into a movie a long time ago, and he plays one of the killers. The point is, is that if you're going to be a cinematic fanatic or a worthwhile fucking cinephile, you have to differentiate between their personal and what they bring to the performance. Example. Yeah, but Robert Blake's not a good example because basically that's like method acting right there. If you wrote out a list of all the actors that you loved, they're not all going to be Keanu Reeves, okay? Musicians. Musicians are usually shitty. They're usually coke-addled, depressed, fucking life forms, and they live weird-ass lives that you wouldn't have anything to do with, and you would not trust them to look after Othello. But we like their music. It's their tragedy and their fucked-upness that allows them to be these performers that they are. I'll say the exception, Robert Downey Jr. That man can do no wrong. He's an example of someone that had like a comeback. Nobody cared about him like in the late 80s, early 90s. It's after it was made aware of his problems. Everybody just loves a comeback story. And he just kind of took on the mantle of, I am everybody's comeback story. Tom Cruise, whether you like him or not, a lot of people like his movies. Hence, every movie that he does ends up earning anywhere from $500 million to $1.5 billion. He just did Top Gun 2. And it's made like almost $2 billion. Not quite that much, but a shit ton. But you know what? No, I'm not letting this go because... A Few Good Men is a great movie. Okay, I, I do like a good movie. The Outsiders. A Few Good Men. The Outsiders is a great movie. Oh, yeah. I like that one. He was a villain in Interview with a Vampire, which I actually haven't seen that movie in about 15 years, but a lot of people like it, and he was a villain in that. Also, he was in a movie called Taps, which is actually a good movie. But all that to say, I don't care for the guy's personal life. I mean, I don't like a lot of actors' personal lives. It's just something that you learn to do if you're going to enjoy films. Let's see if we can name a couple more. Oh, Jerry Maguire. That was my first rated R movie. Okay. Jerry Maguire was a decent movie. It wasn't like a shitty movie. 
had also won an Academy Award for Cuba Gooding Jr. I don't like his stuff when he's young and they're comedy dramas. Like, I don't care for risky business. I never saw all the right moves where he's a high school quarterback. I don't care about any of that. Okay, Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. That is a good fucking movie. You're going to say you don't remember it, but we've seen it at least once. And it's a good movie. That's where Dustin Hoffman is like an idiot savant or something along those lines. Born on the Fourth of July is a sad, fucked up movie, but a lot of people like it. The Firm is a decent John Grisham movie. The Last Samurai is another great movie that we need to watch soon. Jack Reacher. A lot of people had issues with Jack Reacher because he didn't meet the physical qualifications of a six foot six stature, but Jack Reacher is awesome. Tom Cruise, don't give a shit about you and your personal life, but we certainly admire your energy. Well, audience, I certainly opened some passion here. So, Tom Cruise is Vincent. If he can do that, I'm lighting a candle and putting it in the window for the man. Now, the parking garage rooftop that they used towards the end of the movie, that belonged to the Secret Service. And it was a long haul convincing them to let the film shoot up there. This is all we're probably going to know about Vincent's backstory. So Michael Mann had already created this character backstory for Vincent. And this was part of the appeal to Tom Cruise about why he wanted to take on the role. This is where Vincent would have come from. If he was in a foster home or part of his childhood, and he was back in public school at age 11, that would have been sometime in the 70s. He would have been dressed very awkwardly. He would have probably been ostracized. He would have looked odd. We postulated an alcoholic, abusive father who was culturally very progressive. He was probably part of Ed Sadlowski's steelworkers local. He was a Vietnam veteran. He had friends who were African-American on the south side of Chicago. The checkerboard lounge is 30 minutes away on the Calumet Skyway. The father was probably an aficionado of jazz. There was a great jazz scene on the south side of Chicago, but it's almost as if the father blamed the son for what happened to the mother. The father never tutored the boy in jazz and so on. Now this fits. Did you know that in real life, Tom Cruise had an abusive father? Just like in the film, the way he describes his dad. I didn't know that. How do you know that? Oh, just doing research for the film. That explains the jazz seed that was planted. That makes perfect sense. Because he felt like he belonged in that jazz club, the way he conducted himself. And how he drops all those jazz former greats. Just boom, boom, boom. Charlie Mingus, etc. Mm-hmm. Michael Mann knew immediately upon hearing Audio Slave's Shadow on the Sun with Chris Cornell's vocals that he wanted it for the scene in the cab where Vincent and Max see the coyotes trotting across downtown. I thought that was great. Michael Mann would go on to put a few other Audio Slave songs and, for example, the movie Miami Vice. Two great songs by them that I know you also love. Wide Awake and The Shape of Things to Come. Great songs by Audio Slave. And this doesn't even need to be said, but basically I've been listening to Audio Slave all week. Because, In preparation? Well, it just, when I hear Chris Cornell, it just like awakens something in me. Did you like Chris Cornell's song for Casino Royale, that James Bond movie? Yeah, I liked it fine. Uh, not top of the list, probably. Goldfinger. Vegas made, made of gold. gold. Tom Cruise's tactical draw is so good in a scene from Collateral that it's used by experts and lessons for handgun training. And like I mentioned before, the seating of the two leads was crucial to certain scenes. For their more intimate exchanges, Tom Cruise would sit directly behind Jamie Foxx out of his peripheral vision, making him more vulnerable and uncertain of his opponent. I knew I saw this. When Max and Vincent are visiting Max's mother in the hospital, 
there are these signed photos and frames behind his mom. You can clearly see a photograph of Misha Barton. I knew I saw Misha Barton. I was wondering. I mean, I could tell they were like signed photographs. Barton at the time was the star of the hit television show, The O.C. So I don't know why it's in the shot. Yeah, weird. Michael Mann imagines that Vincent lives offshore in a domicile that's maybe in Yudahorn province in Thailand or Songkla, a Buddhist country where people leave everybody else alone a lot. That sounds amazing. That sounds like how Neil Macaulay, like when he was headed to New Zealand in heat after his bank robbery, that sounds like how he would live too, like a private life or like George Clooney in the movie The American based on a very private gentleman or how Jason Bourne would live. How do we see Daniel Craig living in No Time to Die, James Bond? He's in like a little village, like a little fishing village by himself. And it looks adorable. I would love to live there. Okay, director Michael Mann trademark. When Pedrosa is giving orders to his agents at Club FIBA, Christopher Walken style, he says, get clean shots. Watch it background. That is exactly what Vincent Hanna, portrayed by Al Pacino, says in Heat as they are approaching the bank robbers. Get clean shots. Watch your background. Vincent tells Max that his father was abusive and died of liver failure. In real life, Tom Cruise's father was abusive and died of cancer. So you weren't lying. There you go. I thought it was funny when he's like, I killed him. I was 12. <laughs> and then he laughs like he's, he's having a blast uh, yeah. in the back seat. Okay, Andy McNabb was the SAS sergeant and novelist who was very integral to Tom Cruise's weapon training. Lastly, FIBA, FIBA. I've got a fever, and the only solution is the only cure, the only remedy. What? Well, I thought it was prescription. You're right. You're right. Oh. The only prescription <laughs> is more, Vincent. It's a real club, and the name is Bliss. Okay. Bliss sounds so much more dumb and droll and nice. rote. Imagine the FBI tactical squad saying, all right, we're headed to club Bliss, as opposed to how it played out. We're headed to fever. Get to fever now. Okay. We start the film. Collateral, there's no collateral, so you don't know what the fuck this is. DreamWorks. And as the final stars are happening with Paramount, you can hear a plane landing at LAX. Very cool. No credits, also very cool. If you have the balls to be the kind of director that puts in no credits at the beginning, you are a director who has balls of brass, in the words of Danny DeVito, as Hush Hush editor in LA Confidential. This is, correct me if I'm wrong, Red Devil, the slickest fucking looking Tom Cruise ever. I wrote Silver Fox yes. in my notes. He has Bill Clinton hair. It's well, fucking I ridiculous. Like, I don't like Bill Clinton. I'm though. just saying his hair looks identical to Bill Clinton. Mm. It's undeniable. It's poofy. It's gray. <laughs> it's fucking Bill Clinton's hair. <laughs> but, pardon the pun, he's dressed to kill. Uh-huh. You get the Statham cameo. Now, there's a rumor that the reason that they picked Jason Statham is because he had previously been in a couple of transporter movies where he plays the transporter, where he's a man in a suit that drives like a BMW that's got armor on it. He's all about delivering and picking up these international packages for these criminal organizations. The running joke is, is that he's in character in this cameo. Mm. He drops off this package for an assassin. Max likes to work on crossword puzzles. Why is he not working on Sudoku like you like? Ooh, I love it. This is, uh, we're getting into the cab garage. I, what would you call it? I really did like this scene because I like how you can hear all of the sounds. Like there's like that. As soon as the door shuts, it's quiet. Yeah, exactly. You stole my thunder, but uh, it's fine. 
Max is the three ouses. He's punctilious, fastidious, and meticulous. That dude is keeping a very clean cab. He, like a surgeon, is who you want driving your cab. Audience, I told falsetto. Cinematic fanatics. Oh, sorry. Cinematic fanatics. You can, you can use either. I'm just being funny. Like oh, okay. when Vince, like when Vincent said he killed his dad. Anyway, whoever you are, listeners, I told falsetto if he was a cab driver, basically he would be Max. I would be Max, but I would actually be Vincent because Vincent is cool. Max is wearing glasses and a fucking hoodie with an ugly t-shirt underneath. No. Well, my point is that you're very clean. Yeah, well, so is Vincent. Uh. There is an Othello bull mural just outside the garage for the cabs. Never saw that before in my entire life. Seen the movie 20 times. But it is fucking Othello with longhorns. Oh, these these two people that are in the back of the car, like his first fares. It's the dude from Mercury Rising, Bodie Elfman, who is married to Jenna Elfman, by the way. Actually, when I heard Elfman, I thought he was related to Danny Elfman, you know. Oh. Yep. Music, yep. Nightmare Poor Christmas, etc. Debbie Mazar, she is the other passenger with the quintessential East Coast dialect. She was also in The Insider, directed by Michael Mann. She is an investigator working for Al Pacino. Now, the music equals the location. The music that you are hearing is putting you in the culture of LA that you're visiting along with Jamie Foxx. So the music is telling a story. Great aerial shots. Showing the cab, showing the city, and it's not done over much. Did you like the overview shots, the aerial shots? Yeah, I, I loved them. One of my favorites. I mean, many of my favorites. Now I have a theory. There's a possible Vincent sighting outside the cab before he ever picks up Vincent. There is a figure in a very similar gray suit walking by the open window of Jamie Foxx. But I probably am just seeing things. I'm seeing Vincent everywhere. Earlier, I was at the store and I was getting bacon. Fat back bacon. And I looked to my left and I saw what I thought was Vincent, but it wasn't. Oh. Disappointed. Max knows people and he speaks fucking Spanish. Another, along with being meticulously clean, another good habit to have when you're in LA. Max, don't be fooled, is a toxic male predator. The way that he backed up his cab to make sure that Annie would get in. In a way, she became prey as a result. Hmm. He seems like kind of a lowly guy that you would forget about, meek, modest. He specifically targeted Annie to get in his cab. Maybe he and Vincent are in cahoots? I think it's a stretch. Whatever. This is, like I said, the best that Jada Pickett Smith has ever looked. Now, she's never looked ugly, but I remember her in Scream too. And now I'm, I'm seeing her with this long hair and her little business suit, and she's looking very good. Good skin. I got lucky with the lights. Yeah, this will be a running theme. And also on the subway, like we talked about. I love her response. Different instrument. That's a great retort. That's a great rejoinder. I like their dialogue. It's funny. It's innocent. It's believable. I don't like competition. He says this is part-time. She takes a legit shit interest in Max. She is staring right at him. She's asking follow-up questions. She's maintaining eye contact. She is taking a legit shit interest in this cab driver, Max. How believable is that? Well, I think it depends on the day. She's having a day, so she's giving him audience. If it was probably any other day of the week, I think she'd just be dismissing him outright. Island limos. That's a good name. That's a good name for a limo company. A party you won't want to leave. Max is a psychic. Clarence Darrow. He knew that she was an attorney. How about that shit? 
she opens up big time to him. She opens up to him, I would say about 300% more than a woman of her ilk, her stature, her beauty would open up to a cab driver. I thought that was good. I like how that played out. I thought that him giving her the Maldives card, postcard, it would be hard for her to explain to her office colleagues and counterparts. Is that somewhere you've been? No, it's a gift from a cab driver. Anyone would be like, wait, what the fuck? But based in this separate, secluded part of the movie, it's a very nice gift that he gifted her. I like that she has it on her desk, by the way, which you will find out later. He is dogging himself. He should have acquired those digits. Yep, he was too scared. But she comes back. She comes back, yep. And I like like what she says in case. Yeah, you want to argue cab routes? Yeah, I don't know. And then she walks away. That's cute. That was cute. Yep. Vincent is at Annie's building, scouting it out, assassin style, and he wears sunglasses inside of buildings. I think he wears the sunglasses as another form of disguise. Now, when Vincent first meets Max, he is being honest to an extent about how he feels about shit right off the bat. I believe what he's telling Max is how he truly feels about LA and the world at large. Remember, audience and cinematic fanatics, this is the city of anonymity. Max prefers nighttime, as does Vincent, because he's a nocturnal fucking predator. It's interesting that Max does not want to talk about Vincent, about any of his future plans or life ambitions. He did semi-open up to Annie. He was kind of bullshitting Annie, but he did go into a little bit more detail about his plans. How many takes do you think it took Red Devil to get those six bills to fall perfectly in Tom Cruise's hand? Well, it's Tom Cruise, so probably one. Yep. That's probably just how he pays like Subway. Oh, you can't break a bill? Shit. I guess it's on the house. (laughs) That's why he has over $600 million. $300 down. Now, I've heard of assassins paying like that. Hitman, you pay the hitman half up front for their expenses, and then you pay them the second half or a larger chunk when the job is completed. That's how it went in the Jackal with Bruce Willis. $70 million. Half now, half upon completion. Max will only get 300 of the 700 and a free drink and some sterile goddamn hospital flowers. Vincent owes Max. Max should have lifted the remaining three to four bills off of Vince's corpse. What were you thinking, Jamie? Hell, that could have paid for a dinner with your new girl, Annie. Yeah. I want the Sammy that Max is eating. It looks delicious. It looks like it has cherry pepper relish on it. You know how I feel about that cherry pepper I mean, I've, I've been getting hungry since the beginning of this episode. This is not healthy. Oh, well. Maybe a body falling on the hood of your cab will make you lose your appetite. Mm, good point. Don't you agree that this is a flick that works better with no spoilers? If you know in advance, okay, I don't care if you know that Max is a cabbie, but if you know in advance that Tom Cruise is a hitman, they're going to be robbing you of some of the delectable delight of this film. My buddy that I used to work with at Starbucks, I remember he said he saw the cover of the movie in the Walmart bin, and he said it was Tom Cruise sitting there with a gun on the table, and it had Jamie Foxx. And he's like, I'm buying this fucking movie. And it became one of his favorite movies, and we loved watching it together. But if you have not seen this movie, well, you're fucked. But hey, it's been out for what? 17, 18, 19 years? It's been out 19 years, so you should see the movie. But if you can go back in time in this makeshift time machine that we can't makeshift because it doesn't exist, I would say it's a good movie to watch with no spoilers, no information about it at all. I wish I had been able to see it under that specific set of circumstances. But when you see it in the theater, there's already been commercials. And when Tom Cruise is shooting people in the commercials, my man, you all right? 
I like how Vincent appears and he's scanning the scene like a lion on the Serengeti Plains. He is only concerned about who saw what just happened. And from his reaction, you can tell he's up to no fucking good. Red light, Max. I love that line. Red light, Max. Because they already talked about lights. And he's putting it in terms that a cabbie could understand. Red light, Max. I love it. Oh, and we'll just blame gravity for the fat man. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And also, I thought Serengeti said spaghetti. See, you're you're starting I'm just like you're starting you're starting to reflect really and project hungry. your okay. flaws Apparently. of hunger onto this podcast. <laughs> Stop it! <sighs> I love that this is where he loses the tie. Bye bye tie. Just throws it in the trunk with the dead guy. You promise? Yes, I promise. Get in the fucking car. I love it. Vincent is not a believer in promises. Maybe he thinks Max was crossing his fingers behind his back when he said it. I think he's planning to kill Max at the very end, but obviously mm. we, we don't really. Do you think that already? Because he's seen him. Well, he's seen too much. He has to die. Yeah. Okay. Enter Mark Ruffalo, the unrecognizable Mark Ruffalo, the Cholo Vato that he is in this movie, driving a Monte Carlo. How about that? He makes a call to Rampart Division, and that makes me think of the great TV cop drama, The Shield, as that is what the Shield strike team was loosely based on. Okay, I love Lady Macbeth. I love Yo Homie. And Vincent is always vigilant, even when they're at the gas station. He's about 10 feet away from the cab, and he's surveying the scene. John Wick. Yeah, this alleyway scene, I think it's cooler than John Wick. And for you, Wham Bam, and for all you Wick lovers out there, take a fucking chill pill. This is why. As cool as John Wick is, and yes, he is tactical, but it's clear when you're watching a John Wick movie that you're totally outside the realm of reality, and you're in this fantasy continental gold coin world. John Wick is talking to Ian McShane and John Wick 2, and Ian McShane like lifts up his coffee mug and everybody stops walking. Okay, we're clearly in another world. What I like about this alleyway scene, this is an accomplished trained, skilled assassin in real life wearing an impeccable gray suit who looks like Tom Cruise. It's a sense of realism through the eyes of Michael Mann, and that's quite a feat. That's a bank robbery in heat is what that is. And it's a little different than John Wick because when you when you go to a John Wick flick, you're clearly watching art in cinematic form. So that's why I think it's cooler in this one respect. I actually think that Vincent was John Wick prior to John Wick. I think this is like the early stages of John Wick. This was probably John Wick when he was in his prime. He mentions, Vincent mentions Dexter Gordon, Charlie Mingus, Chet Baker. Some of those were also mentioned in the film Whiplash, which was a very good film. Yeah, that, that, I did like that film, yeah. Because they talk about Charlie Parker at the jazz club, and that was the big guy that J.K. Simmons was you know, working with in Whiplash when he was in his prime. Oakland cabbie, urban legend, urban jungle legend, <laughs> another pun. You think, and I never thought about that before, you think that Vincent had come to LA before because of the comments that he makes in the cab, and you think that he's killed people before via the courier of a cab driver, and then he killed the cab driver. You think that he was the one responsible for this urban legend of a dead cabbie that went on a killing spree. Yeah, because- like You might be right. I don't know. I What is the point of- The only reason I can think that that came up through Mark Ruffalo's mouth is because- they have to give you a reason as the audience, as the audience, as the cinematic fanatic. They have to give you a reason to think that Mark Ruffalo would start suspecting that it was a cab. Mm. That's the only reason I can think of. That's true. I, but your idea is probably because why else would Tom Cruise have said, I've been to LA before? Yeah, we know he's been there. 
my question is, I wish I, I can't find anything on that though. Mm. I can't find, I found a lot of answers to a lot of questions. Like I was able to find, yes, Tom Cruise is at Annie's building at the beginning of the movie, scouting it out. He already knows who Annie is. So when he looks at the business card and he sees her name and puts it together that Jamie Foxx had a failed date attempt with her, he starts talking to him about how you should call her. I think he's just being kind of sadistic. Yeah. Because he knows he's going to kill both of them. Right. At least he thinks he's going to kill both of them. I have no reason to think that you're wrong. I'm so glad that that's going to be on the internet forever. Well, that's my way of saying that you're right in this one instance. Because (laughs) there's no conceivable way that I can refute your claim that he has been to LA before and he killed a cabbie before. Because he killed like 20 people or 16 people in this movie. Imagine how many people he's killed in the course of his six years in the private sector. Probably hundreds. Whatever. Holy shit. Everybody in the universe heard that. In the words of your former boyfriend, he could kill six guys and then have a sandwich. Maybe even the sandwich oh God, that Jamie Foxx so was enjoying in the cab. <laughs> now, is Vincent drinking at the club or is he drinking water? Is he trying to stay sharp or can he afford one beverage and then and not throw him off? I mean, if I was going to be an assassin, I wouldn't be drinking on the job. After, maybe. Miles Davis. I love the whole Miles Davis angle. If Tom Cruise took him to Fimsical fucking Whimsical or Laser Tag or something else to blow off steam, it would not have carried the same resonance as it does a jazz club. That was really cool. It just makes me want to go to a jazz club. Well, Canada. What? Canada. Canada is down the line. Canada is relatively close oh, to the United oh, States oh. border. I was like, Maybe what? there will be jazz in Canada. Yeah, but jazz is American. All right, whatever. Now, Coulahan in Cartagena, when he says those two cities, Coulahan in Cartagena, and Daniel's face, you know something's about to go down. And then Max is picking up on what is being discussed there in the body language. And he's like, okay, what the fuck? It was really cool how they filmed that. Daniel says, I'm not going back inside. This is reminiscent of heat. Exact words of Robert De Niro. The last words of Robert De Niro is Neil Macaulay. Told you I'm never going back. Great last line. I like that still better than Vincent, but Vincent's last line in this film is pretty goddamn amazing. Daniel got the answer wrong. Whoops. I think that the question that Tom Cruise asked should have been multiple choice or true fucking false. What do you think? Well, it was a trick question. It was a trick question. Because he technically got it right. He just didn't fully answer I know. I I took it to mean, where he said, where did Miles learn music? He went to Juilliard, which is where John Mayer went, for example. But then Tom Cruise says quietly, he dropped out after a very short period of time. And then he met this other guy. That's where he learned music. So I think that Daniel's answer is like the academic answer, but it's wrong. That's what I think. And that's why I killed him. Just kidding. He oi killed oi. him. He killed him because he has a contract to fulfill. Because he does this for a living. Two paces ahead, one to the left, the way he tells Max how to walk in the hospital. I love it. He's wearing sunglasses inside again. I like this because it's consistent. This is the second overlap of main characters where they're all in the elevator. Max's mom says he drives famous people around. How right you are, Mrs. DeRocher, because he does drive famous people around, i.e. Tom fucking Cruise. Okay, Tom Cruise is shooting in such tight groups, they're able to identify that the last few bodies that have come to the morgue are the work of the same gunmen. Where are they? Like Pasadena? It looks like they're in this lonely stretch of LA Road where there's nothing but plants around. Holy shit, that air looks dirty. I hope that Jamie Foxx and his flustered state turn on the recycle air inside that cab. 
But then, of course, I hope that Vincent doesn't pass gas because then it would be really yeah. bad. It would be Pasadena inside the cab. You've already talked about Pete. Hey, easy. Do we have to Easy, talk? easy now. Easy. Take it easy. <laughs> Club El Rodeo looks fucking rough. They've got like four SWAT guys outside patting you down before they let you in the club. One of my favorite lines, this is definitely a contender. At 10.01, I drive to the hospital and execute your mother on my way out of town and don't pretend indifference. <laughs> Holy shit. What do you say to that? The club looks legit in a Michael Mann type way. I love Bruce McGill. He's also from The Insider. Bruce McGill is the FBI guy here that's carrying a little extra weight. And he's the guy on The Insider that says, now wipe that smirk off your face. Oh, you've got rights and lefts and ups and downs and middles. So what? He's great. He's kind of a character actor, but he was also in Michael Mann's The Insider. Michael Mann likes to recycle his actors, it seems. Mm -hmm. Roofs all beat to shit. That was their way of showing you how observant Fanning is. Roofs all beat to shit. Roofs all beat to shit. Great cameo by Javier. Javier. He's in it for five minutes. He's talking about Humpty Dumpty and Pedro Negro, and it's fucking hilarious. Yep. But also terrifying. When he says, how fucking furious. Oh, man. I'm like, oh, God. He's going to die. Dedos, fingers, informants. Witnesses are dying. We finally get the first hour of the film. Why Vincent is killing who he's killing and who contracted him out. Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Tell that guy behind me to put that gun down. I liked how they filmed that because he somehow knew that guy was making a move. Maybe he saw a reflection or something. But the way they film it, you as the audience are going, uh, and then Max makes his move. Finds so, his balls. Finds his balls. Now, the choppers flying overhead stirs memories of heat. Airport, also equivalent to heat. I like it. We're quiet again, and you get a cab overview. It's pensive. It's reflective. You should call her if we make it out alive. This is a curious comment. You have, okay, this is the best scene. You've got palm trees. You've got light. You've got Vincent's face. Coyotes, one scared, sprinting, the other proud and prancing along. This is Max and Vincent. It's also Othello and OJ. Yep. One scared, one chasing the other. That's how it always is. The club flops. The club is fucking fantastic. Red Devil's favorite scene. I've got a fever. Wonder, innocent bystanders get the first round. Love it. I love how he's calculating and he's marking the threats. So he goes straight for Lim's bodyguards. Bam, boom, bam. He's taking them out in a very calculating manner. Two to the chest, one to Lynn's head. Time for Mr. Vincent to go get himself a sandwich now. There's a scene where Max says, it was a born-to-lose deal. This is very reminiscent of Heat because Robert De Niro says in his diner scene with Al Pacino, do you see me doing thrill-seeker liquor store holdups with a born-to-lose tattoo on my chest? Born-to-lose, born-to-lose. Telling you. Okay, it's funny too because after the cab crash, Jamie Foxx is basically telling the cop, just take me to jail. But then he sees Annie on the computer screen, realizes she's a target, and then he starts negotiating. <laughs> this isn't a fuck negotiation. That was great. Quit moving. Stop moving. This is where we get into rear window slash Disturbia. Disturbia. Very cool. Very cool with the usage of one character knowing everything, the other character not knowing anything, and them having to communicate from a distance. And time is of the essence. Straight out of rear window. Mm, I'm going to make you watch rear window tonight. When the ambulance does roll up after the cop called the ambulance, they're going to find the cop handcuffed to a car. That's funny. Okay, ear shot. Tom Cruise gets shot in the ear. Brad Pitt gets punched in the ear by Edward Norton in Fight Club. I thought that was funny. Cruise running. Tom Cruise always looks cool when he's running, but this is the best he's ever looked running. 
He's moving like a cheetah. He's not moving like a human. And note, he's got at least one gun in his pants and ammunition in his pants. No belt. And he's just moving with rapidity. That jump that he jumps onto the subway train platform, that was a Carl Lewis fucking jump. And it was awesome. Good death. Great shot of him dying. Okay, Red Devil, what is the future of Max and Annie? I agree with you, obviously. They're, they're going to be together. Yeah, they had a connection before all this. So, obviously. Now we see collateral credit for the first time, post-film. Maybe it's like Vincent. It's just very economical filming style. Now, Collateral received positive reviews. Driven by director Michael Mann's trademark visuals and a lean, villainous performance from Tom Cruise. Collateral is a stylish and compelling noir thriller. Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post praised the film and Cruise's performance. He summarized the film as the best kind of genre filmmaking. It plays by the rules, obeys the traditions, and is both familiar and fresh at once. Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars. And he praised the performances of Cruise and Fox, calling Fox's work a revelation. Some dialogue scenes that I really like. Why didn't you just kill me and get another cab driver? Because you're good. We're in this together. Fates intertwine. Cosmic coincidence. And then, of course, dark humor. But Vincent, they project onto you their flaws, what they don't like about themselves. I had a father like that. Mothers are worse. Wouldn't know. My mother died before I remember her. What about your father? Hated everything I did. Got drunk. Beat me up. In and out of foster homes. That kind of thing. And then I killed him. I was 12. (laughs) I'm kidding. He died of liver disease. Well, I'm sorry. No, you're not. Now, the wardrobe of Vincent is very, very well explained in this website. BAMF style. Iconic and interesting men's fashions for movies and TV. So from October 23rd, 2012, you can read all about Collateral, aka Vincent's suit. Now, this gets down into his suit, his background, what he wears, why he wears it. Like Neil McCauley from Heat, he's well-dressed, but he's wearing clothing that's unmemorable. It's like a light gray. It's metallic. It's white. He's not wearing anything colorful. He's not wearing anything that stands out. His hair and his facial expressions match his suit. He is a living machine sharking his way through the streets of LA. Also, there's very few buttons on his apparel. Everything is very form-fitted. It's very lean. The lapels are very thin. He loses the tie pretty early on, and it's very tactical. And the fact that he doesn't wear a belt means that the pants are fitted for his size, which means his body is always going to be the same size, that he doesn't gain weight. He doesn't lose weight. He always maintains everything, and it's all mechanized. Vincent's Heckler and Coke USP 45 is holstered in a custom-made black IWB holster carried on the right side of his waistband. The holster was created for the production and certified by the Prop Store of London. This would make a fine choice if you want to carry a la Vincent without going to the trouble of getting a custom-made holder. And where he places the gun and the extra ammo magazines is wise tactical placement, given the frequency of Vincent grabbing a fresh magazine. It also explains why he needs to button his jacket when he's in more genteel settings. That cool-looking watch that's on his wrist that you can clearly see on the subway That's a $7,000 timepiece. It is an IWC Vintage Engineer Automatic IW3233. Holy shit balls. I know you were curious about 
the technology that he had. Now, it would be easier if he had it all on a cell phone, which if this movie was made today, that's what it would be. It's a Hewlett Packard TC1100 tablet, a Nokia 6800 cell phone with a fold-out QWERTY keyboard. Now, you know what QWERTY is, right? It's the standard keyboard configuration. At the top left, those are the letters that go from left to right, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And a PNY executive attache USB flash drive provided by Felix. Very fucking cool. Ebert talks about this. When I watched this movie with my dad, he just didn't understand the movie. He didn't care for it. And he, about eight minutes into the movie, Jamie Foxx is with Jada Pickett Smith and they're talking in the cab. I remember my dad stopping and looking at me and saying, what does this have to do with the movie? And I said, well, you got to watch the movie. So it was a risky choice, but it works out, in my opinion, very well. And Ebert would go on to say, this is a long scene to come at the beginning of a thriller, but a good one, establishing two important characters. It is also good on its own terms, like a self-contained short film. It allows us to learn things about Max we could not possibly learn in the scenes to follow, and adds a subtext after the next customer into his cab is Tom Cruise. These scenes are so much more interesting, according to Roger Ebert, than the standard approach of the shifty club owner or the comic relief Big Mama. Man allows dialogue into the kind of movie that many directors now approach as wall-to-wall action. Action gains a lot when it happens to convincing individuals instead of to the -the off-the-shelf action figures. Don't you feel more for the characters? And isn't that partly why you like the Club Fever scene so much? Because by the time Tom Cruise gets to Fever, you're invested in the outcome, right? Yeah, sure. And it's just coming to my attention that we didn't even talk about when he saves Max. He does save Max from the Cholo that's going to shoot him with a laser-sighted weapon. It's selfish, though. At first, I'm like, oh my gosh, that like, what? But obviously, it's selfish. Well, the look that he gives Jamie Foxx after he saves him is like, Motherfucker, I told you not to stray. This is what happens when you stray. That's the impression that I got from it. Now, this is going to touch on what you mentioned about how both characters had a a pronounced impact on the other's lives. Vincent, also from Ebert, Vincent is not what he seems, but his secret is not that he's a killer. That's merely his occupation. His secret is his hidden psychological life going back to childhood. And in the way he thinks all the time about what life means, even as he takes it. When Max tells him the taxi job is temporary and talks about his business plans, Vincent finds out how long he's been driving a cab, 12 years, and quotes John Lennon, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Max tells Vincent something too. You lack standard parts that are supposed to be there in most people. That's what you were talking about. Can't argue with that. This is probably where half of a star is taken away from a perfect four-star ranking. I would have preferred for the movie to end in something other than a chase scene, particularly one involving a subway train, since I've seen about six of those already this summer. But man directs it well, and he sets it up with a cat and mouse situation and a darkened office, which is very effective. It opens with a touch of rear window as Max watches what's happening on different floors of an office building. And lastly, to give credit to the most beautiful she has ever been, Jada Pinkett Smith, Observe the way Jada sidesteps the conventions of the meet cute and brings everyday plausibility to every moment of Annie's first meeting with Max. This is a rare thriller that's as much character study as Sound and Fury. Red Devil, do you have any latent or procrastinated statement thoughts about Collateral? 
Yeah. The only other thing that came to my mind that we didn't talk about is when Vincent and Max go meet his mom or go visit his mom in the hospital. And then Max really just wants to get Vincent out of there. And then he takes the briefcase and then he just like goes for it and then throws it over. I thought when I first saw the movie, I was like, oh, crap, like what's going to happen? I feel like he can't die at this point. But I really like that part, too. How cool was it with Tom Cruise running to Jason? I was scared. That was so fucking cool. Well, Cinematic Fanatics, a.k.a. Podience, I will have you know that I, Falsetto, your worthwhile fucking cinephile, am now available on the following Audible streaming platforms. I am available on Amazon Music, a.k.a. Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, of course, Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. Apple Music, and those actually filter into others. So you've got Anchor, and you've got, it's actually on IMBD now, if you type in Chemohawk Sessions, it will be popping up all over the fucking place. But Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon, you can happily find Chemohawk Sessions. Please remember to click on the polls, as I have gone back and put a poll on every single episode, and leave comments on Apple Podcasts. I would very much appreciate any feedback, any critiques, and any complimentary words on how these have in any way transformed your life for the better. This devilishly distracting pursuit of slick escapism was a lean, mean flick illuminated by real mundane city light capturing one surreal, insane night. This flick is worth the hype. Slick villain Vincent subverts cast type, his killer instinct ripe, shown through blood-soaked but steady card swipe. He shoots holes into his own historically heroic archetype in sleek, stealthy gray suit, not pinstripe. Long before Vincent will die, he loses the tie, for he is a quick, slick, sly, cabby-fucking guy. His enticing six-bill cash card trick so very fucking slick throughout this lean engrossing flick outclassing cops crooks and one side swiped cab disarm his gun he'll still stab fuck with vincent you'll sport a toe tag with your cold dead ass on a cold hard slab Woo! that's pretty good that is pretty good i remain always your fellow fiend for films your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least F-Stars edible, for my next Slick Flick F-Stars pick. Pick six. Slick Flick pick. Rocking chairs and lethal stairs. Gunplay, wordplay that subvert cliche. Hell or high water. 2014. Starring very special guest audience member j dog falsetto and red devil out